0: Welcome to this uh, lecture. Uh, My name is Kevin Featherstone and I'm the head of the European Institute here at the the school. This lecture is part of our series uh, of perspectives on uh, Europe. And over the years, we've attracted uh, and hosted many international uh, speakers. And uh, our topic today could hardly be more newsworthy. That is Uh, to look at the implications uh, for the UK with its referendum decision uh, looming and uh, a decision which obviously has profound implications for the UK, consequences for the rest of Europe and indeed consequences for the international system. So we do face a major uh, decision on June the 23rd. And our speaker this morning, uh, it is... Uh, In fact, this afternoon, uh, our speaker uh, today is well able to address this uh, question uh, on the basis of, quote, an insider's view. Uh, Jonathan Fall has been a member of the EU Commission uh, for almost 30 years, I say uh, so, um, so embarrassingly, perhaps in terms of the length of time. But Jonathan has been a long-term servant of the EU uh, Commission. Currently, he's heading the Commission's task force on the strategic implications of the British referendum. Uh, but prior to that, Jonathan has held a number of posts, Director General of Justice, Freedom and Security. Uh, he previously worked in the Cabinet of Sir Leon, Britain uh, when uh, Sir Leon Britain was vice President. Uh, prior to that, uh, he was appointed Deputy Director General for Competition, responsible for state aid. Uh, he subsequently became Chief Spokesman and Director General for Press and Communications of the Commission. Jonathan has uh, studied at the Universities of Sussex and Geneva, as well as the College of Europe uh, in Bruges. He is currently a Professor of Law at the Free University in Brussels. These events normally have a Twitter hashtag, uh, and I assume that people in the audience understand that better than myself. Uh, the Twitter hashtag for this is uh, hashtag LSE Brexit vote. Uh, so you can follow the comments uh, being uh, made on Twitter as we uh, proceed. Now, Jonathan is going to speak for about uh, 30 minutes It is on the uh, the record Uh, here. It is being recorded. Uh, There will be plenty of time for Q and A afterwards, uh, so we can have a good uh, discussion uh, subsequently. Uh, So, without further ado, because we are a little bit limited by time, uh, please join me in giving a very warm welcome to Jonathan Fall.
1: Thank you very much indeed, uh, Professor Fellerston. Good afternoon, indeed, to you all. Uh, It's a great honor uh, to be in this great uh, seat of learning, British-European seat of learning. Uh, I am, I suppose, an insider in Brussels. Uh, I'm a little bit of an outsider in the uh, referendum debate for two reasons. Firstly, I don't have a vote. I've been away too long. 15-year uh, cut-off. By the way, nearly 30 years. It's closer to 40 years. Uh, and uh, I uh, cannot, and I hope I uh, do not give you anything newsworthy to put uh, together with the hashtag. Uh, the European Commission is not taking part in the campaign at all. Uh, and I've certainly not come here to say anything which might influence the way anybody uh, chooses to vote. Although I hope uh, you all do vote. The those of you who uh, are entitled to do so. Uh, I've lived in Brussels for a very long time, 38 years actually. Uh, uh, I left uh, the UK in 1978. I don't feel an outsider here, of course, in the sense that I'm British and uh, come back very regularly. Uh, But uh, we have set in the European Commission, we have set ourselves uh, very clear rules. We're not campaigning, and we are not speculating about what might happen afterwards. Uh, uh, We, of course, uh, are well aware uh, of all the various uh, 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 hypothetical situations in which we may find ourselves on the 24th of June, Uh, but uh, I will try uh, this afternoon uh, to stick to the facts uh, as we understand them, as I understand them, Uh, and try to give you some flavor of the way I think it looks in Brussels and perhaps uh, elsewhere uh, in uh, the European Union. Now, the the 23rd of June is the culmination of a process, perhaps, uh, perhaps a culmination. And where that process starts, where the story starts, is a matter of uh, historical judgment. Uh, All sorts of dates can be uh, banded around, 1066. 1688, uh, 1945, 1973, I'm going to simplify matters and start with last May's general election. 2015, a Conservative government uh, is uh, returned to power with a manifesto commitment to hold a referendum by the end of uh, 2017. We now know uh, uh, the date. It's three weeks away. And here we are. Uh, What has happened since uh, uh, the election uh, can be divided into a number of phases. There was a period of informal discussions between the British authorities, the government, uh, uh, the senior civil servants involved, their counterparts in other European countries and in the uh, Brussels uh, institutions, Uh, And uh, those informal talks became more formal negotiations once the Prime Minister set out in a letter to the European Council's President Donald Tusk on the 10th of November last year uh, what uh, he wanted uh, to see uh, renegotiated uh, before uh, he uh, called uh, the referendum. Uh, That culminated in two meetings of the European Council, two summits, one in December last year and the conclusive one on the 18th and 19th of February this year, uh, at which what is called in our Brussels jargon, but it's the official name, a new settlement uh, with the United Kingdom was reached. That new settlement will uh, be implemented if the United Kingdom remains a member state Uh, Of the European Union. Uh, It contains uh, a number of uh, commitments, uh, uh, some of which will be turned into legislation, and we in the European Commission will initiate that legislation pretty quickly, I think, uh, after the referendum. If the result is, I'm going to say positive, you know what I mean, it's not a value judgment, but if the uh, the uh, decision is uh, to stay, uh, and other parts of which uh, are self-executing. They are uh, commitments uh, entered into, binding commitments entered into uh, in an international law. Agreement in the form of a decision uh, of, and this the legal distinction here is important this is a decision of the heads of state or government of the member states of the European Union meeting in the European Council. To the non lawyers, I apologize, that sounds very complicated. It is an important legal distinction. This was not a decision of the institution of the European Union known as the European Council, Uh, it was an international agreement uh, between the leaders of the countries which are members of uh, the uh, European Union, and the British government has deposited that agreement uh, at the UN Depository of International Agreements in New York. The four issues which were set out uh, in uh, the Prime Minister's letter, uh, and uh, which we think were dealt with uh, satisfactorily uh, in uh, the 19th of February uh, decision, uh, uh, are economic governance, sovereignty, competitiveness, and the free movement of workers, and the uh, impact of uh, Social Security on the free movement of workers uh, within the European Union. The first subject, economic governance, essentially deals with the relationship uh, between uh, the euro countries and the non-euro countries uh, sharing together the European Union and its single market between them. As you know, there are 19 euro countries, there are nine non-euro countries, neither group is absolutely uh, homogenous Uh, Indeed, the nine non-euro countries are very different in uh, their relationships or their aspirations uh, in respect uh, of uh, the euro. Uh, You have countries which want to join the euro uh, uh, but are not yet ready to do so. You have countries which are hesitating about uh, whether or not to join the euro. You have only two countries without a legal obligation to join the euro, uh, and that is the United Kingdom and Denmark, albeit in slightly different ways. And you have, I suppose, uh, 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 differently from all the others in the case of the United Kingdom, a country which uh, has an opt-out, does not have to join the euro, has a government which says that it does not intend to join the euro, and has a very large, the largest European (coughs) financial centre within uh, its borders, uh, the City of London. The euro-non-euro issues were not new because in the negotiations and in the legislative processes in the last few years uh, uh, in uh, relation to the governance of the euro area, in relation to uh, banking regulation in particular, uh, had already uh, seen the emergence of the issues which were dealt with Uh, In uh, the 19th of February settlement. Uh, They are, I'm simplifying a a complicated set of issues, they are uh, the uh, outlawing of discrimination, a ban on discrimination within uh, the European single market on grounds of currency, currency of transaction or the principal currency of firms uh, engaging in financial transactions. That was an issue already dealt with Uh, and now uh, enshrined uh, in uh, the uh, decision, in the the, uh, settlement text, and uh, a special mechanism to deal with the circumstances or circumstances in which uh, legislation going through uh, the uh, European Union uh, process uh, might uh, give rise to concerns on the part of a country outside the Euro that uh, it uh, risked being outvoted on uh, something important uh, because there are more of them than there are of us. This is a uh, forward-looking projection uh, uh, because uh, there is a view, who knows what will happen, that uh, the Euro area will uh, grow in size Uh, in uh, the coming years, or at the very least, the banking union will grow in size uh, in uh, the coming years. And if the United Kingdom remains true uh, to uh, its commitment uh, not to join either, then uh, the numbers uh, uh, begin to stack up against it. I think that is the concern, shared, by the way, with some of the other non-Euro countries, and a special mechanism uh, uh, is to be created uh, to allow uh, a much more detailed consideration than the normal legislative process uh, if uh, such problems should occur. So uh, governance uh, of the euro area, both building on uh, recent experience and practice and attempting to foresee what might Uh, happen in the next few years I think has been dealt with uh, in uh, the uh, settlement agreement uh, in a a satisfactory manner. The second set of issues uh, which goes under the general heading of sovereignty uh, covers a variety uh, of concerns. Uh, The first uh, is the expression to be found in the European treaties Uh, ever closer union, Uh, uh, much understood, misunderstood, interpreted, uh, and so on. Uh, It's a small U union, and a small C closer for that matter, and a small E forever. Uh, It is union not used in exactly the same way uh, as we use the word in other contexts, so it's not the European Capital Union. But in nearly all, this is uh, legalese, of course, but in nearly all European languages, the word union is used, although I understand, perhaps some here will know this better than I, that in the Slav languages, uh, a different word is used. There is one word for European Union in Polish, for example, and ever closer union is uh, uh, translated in a different way. Never mind that. What does it mean is, of course, uh, the most important issue, Uh, Is it uh, a commitment uh, to uh, ever greater uh, integration within the European Union? Is it uh, an expression which forms the basis of or guides legislation or the interpretation of it by the courts? Frankly, the answer to all those questions is no. It is not an independent legal basis, has never been, uh, and... Uh, uh, it is very definitely ever closer union among peoples, not among states or governments uh, and uh, as a matter of fact, though one has one had uh, to recognize that it had become had come to be understood differently in some political circles and contexts uh, across uh, the union so Mr. Cameron told us, in the UK uh, this is understood as committing us to ever greater integration and we would like it said very clearly that that is not the case and that is indeed what the text does. It says very clearly that this notion does not bind the United Kingdom, doesn't bind anybody else for that matter to further steps of integration they don't wish to take. Uh, And uh, it was agreed that that clarification uh, uh, would be uh, added to the European treaties uh, when they are next amended. It's not necessary, but it was considered appropriate, uh, and uh, that will now be done. And I hope uh, that uh, uh, this will uh, uh, put an end Uh, to the misunderstanding uh, of that expression uh, and any uh, perception that uh, the notion of ever-closer union is, in isolation, uh, a commitment to further steps of integration. The second big uh, sovereignty issue relates to the role of national parliaments in the European Union's decision-making process. And here, there is a history... Uh, There have been, over the years, various attempts to bind national parliaments more uh, into the European Union's processes without undermining uh, the parliament created for the very purposes of the European Union's legislative system, accountability system as well, the European Parliament. We have a European Parliament. We have... Uh, national parliaments. We have many sub-national parliaments, by the way, of course, in this country and and in many others. But the the attempts, which I suppose have not been fully satisfactory or the problem would not have arisen again, the attempt to uh, uh, find a role for national parliaments uh, has continued. And what we have done uh, on this occasion in the settlement agreement uh, is... Uh, recognize that national parliaments have a particular role in and concern for uh, the judgment uh, as to whether a uh, legislative proposal coming from the European Commission meets uh, the requirements of subsidiarity. National parliaments are ideally placed uh, to know whether uh, something could be better done at their level, at the member state level, than at European level. So what we have done in this agreement uh, is provided that if a certain number of national parliaments uh, find uh, that a legislative proposal is inappropriate because not fully respectful of the principle of subsidiarity, then uh, they would notify that concern, and essentially the Council of Ministers would cease to work on the proposal. This does not require, did not require, uh, any legislative, let alone treaty change. It is simply a self-denying ordinance by uh, the ministers in the council who would, respecting, by the way, their own constitutional ties back to their national parliaments, they are ministers of their governments responsible to their national parliaments, they would uh, uh, simply uh, stop working on a proposal... Uh, if a certain number of national parliaments uh, had opposed it uh, on uh, subsidiarity grounds. The third category was competitiveness, no doubt uh, the most uh, difficult uh, to uh, implement in practice, but uh, by far the least difficult uh, in dealing with in uh, the context of the particular agreement because we don't need any more rules or commitments. We need simply to do uh, uh, the things that we have uh, uh, said all of us uh, should be done for a very long time uh, to make uh, the European economy, the economies of our member states, uh, more competitive. Now, given uh, the views uh, of the uh, British government, I almost said the United Kingdom, Uh, on uh, some of these issues, it will not surprise anyone that the focus is very much on reducing the burden on businesses, in particular small and medium-sized businesses, uh, on concluding trade agreements with our uh, international partners around the world, uh, and uh, more generally uh, uh, orientating uh, all European policies towards the goal Uh, of uh, making our businesses more competitive uh, and therefore uh, 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 bringing about uh, greater growth uh, and employment. So there are various commitments on that. Uh, We in the Commission believe that we are largely doing those things already, and if they're not being done uh, uh, well enough or quickly enough, uh, it is because we're not perfect either, but it's also because... Uh, the other institutions of the Union and the other member states uh, also need uh, to be reminded of the importance uh, of those commitments and so uh, I hope very much uh, that uh, uh, that uh, will uh, happen Uh, if uh, this settlement comes into effect uh, you will see no doubt and you will see no doubt in the British Presidency of the Council of the European Union in the second half of next year uh, you will see Uh, a uh, renewed commitment uh, to many of those issues. The fourth issue and perhaps the most difficult legally and politically uh, was this interaction uh, between uh, social uh, welfare provision and the free movement of workers around the European Union. Now it is a matter of fact that the population of this country uh, has increased considerably uh, in the last uh, 10 uh, to 12 years. Uh, it is also true that we all failed to predict uh, the uh, movement of people uh, which followed the big 2004 enlargement of the Union. Uh, okay. Uh, who knows uh, why uh, that uh, Uh, failure occurred. Uh, It is another fact, of course, that the enlargement of the European Union was followed by a major recession, the biggest recession in our lifetimes, not predicted at the time. So we have had a financial morphing into uh, an economic crisis, uh, which followed enlargement, followed not in any way caused by a post hoc no propter. Uh, And uh, one of the results of all of that. Uh, has been a considerable movement of uh, workers from other member states in the European Union into this country. Uh, There are several reasons for that. One can uh, uh, speculate about, I think, with a uh, reasonable degree of uh, assurance. The UK decided not to impose the seven-year transitional period, uh, which uh, France and Germany, among the other big economies, uh, of uh, uh, the EU did. Uh, we speak English, which is a language... I'm going When I say we, by the way, you'll have to forgive me. I think you'll get it from the context. Sometimes it's British, sometimes it's uh, Commission. Uh, we have multiple identities, after all. Um, we speak English, which is the language which most people learn as a second language in the rest of Europe these days, uh, uh, or if they don't, they want to. Uh, We have had, we have, uh, a relatively uh, buoyant economy uh, in comparison with some uh, other uh, countries of the European Union, and uh, we have an economy uh, which has generated uh, a considerable number of largely low-paid, low-skilled, centrally-service economy jobs uh, which have been filled Uh, uh, to a certain extent, by uh, workers from other member states. I am not going to take a position on whether that is good or bad, whether the British economy uh, has benefited or suffered from it. I can only take, we could only take, uh, at face value, uh, Mr. Cameron's uh, concern as Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, uh, that uh, this uh, had uh, created a number of problems which, Uh, he wanted to see result. Now, what is uh, the impact uh, on all of this of the British social security system? That's an important question. Uh, The argument made was uh, that, and I'm simplifying a much more complicated issue, of course, that the uh, British social security system uh, has a set of non-contributory in-work benefits, which for low-paid workers uh, constitute a considerable top-up of their income. And that this acts as an incentive to workers to take those jobs and to employers to offer workers those jobs. And this was part of a lengthy process of widening the gap uh, between uh, unemployment benefit and in-work benefit to encourage people to work. Fine. That is uh, to simplify the facts as they were presented to us and seemed to us uh, relatively plausible. Now, to what extent a worker from another member state uh, coming to uh, the UK Uh, weighs up uh, this factor among all the other factors in that very important subjective decision, I don't know. Uh, uh, There is some survey evidence, uh, uh, but again, uh, we take at face value, we took at face value uh, the Conservative Party manifesto first of all raising this and then uh, ultimately the Prime Minister on behalf of the government raising it formally. uh, He Said on behalf of the country to the other countries of Europe, this has uh, drawn people in and is placing uh, a considerable burden on uh, the social security system and on the planning of public services. And indeed, I have to say, that does seem to be a uh, plausible argument. In a sophisticated modern welfare economy, the planning of public services uh, uh, takes place well in advance of their provision, and an unpredicted demographic change is bound, it seems to me, uh, to have an impact on that. I take no position on what other decisions were made, could have been made. Uh, uh, That's not our business. So Mr. Cameron said... Uh, uh, to summarise way back in the Conservative Party manifesto and then uh, in uh, the uh, letter setting out the British government's position, I want to delay by four years access eligibility for these in-work non-contributory benefits for workers from other member states. And that is the argument went not discriminatory Uh, In the legal sense, it is an unequal treatment, certainly, or disparate treatment, uh, based on objective uh, uh, characteristics of the British system uh, and introducing a requirement of a certain period uh, in which uh, the worker demonstrates a commitment to the society uh, and the economy uh, of the country. So... As you all know, no doubt, the final agreement on that was that for four years, phasing in, a member state may, if it has a non-contributory in-work benefit system, uh, an unexpected influx of workers from other member states, and uh, uh, can demonstrate a strain on public services and the social security system, a member state may... uh, uh, phase-in requirements to those benefits over a period of four years. And that mechanism will be created by legislation if the UK votes to stay, and then the UK and indeed any other member state meeting those requirements uh, will be able uh, to uh, make use of it. The second uh, Social Security issue relates to uh, child benefit and the payment of child benefit where the worker is in one country and his or her children are in another country. At the moment, social uh, welfare provision in all member states, as it happens, uh, is based on the view that child benefit is paid to the worker parent uh, wherever uh, the children may be. We we plan to introduce, again, if the UK votes to stay, uh, the option for member states of moving to a system essentially of a weighting factor uh, whereby the uh, country where the worker is working would pay the child benefit weighted by a factor reflecting uh, the cost of living in the country where the child may be. So let's say I am a uh, French worker in uh, London, and I have one child in France, one in Lithuania, and one in, I know, but uh, this is fiction, by the way, Um, and one in Sweden. So I would go to the local uh, social security office and say, I would like my uh, child benefit, please, and they would have a piece of paper, which no doubt uh, our statisticians would have to produce and keep updated, and they would say, okay, UK is 100 France is uh, probably about the same, Uh, Sweden, oh, 110, Uh, you get even more, but what did I say, Lithuania? Yes. Lithuania, 95, Uh, and I would get a, it's complicated system, uh, no doubt, but it would have to be set up if the United Kingdom uh, opted into that system, and I guess given the context in which all this arises, it would. So that is, in a nutshell, what... Uh, we, uh, what, what we have done. Now, to anticipate all the nasty questions you might be uh, thinking about asking me, uh, I don't know what's going to happen on the 23rd of June. I don't know what's going to happen on the 24th of June. Uh, the implications of all of this are rising up to the top of the political agenda now all over Europe. Uh, there is a sense, within the last three weeks. Uh, The May 5th elections are behind us. We are now in the last innings, the second half, choose your sporting metaphor. uh, uh, And we have uh, all the bureaucratic and political machines in Europe beginning to think about what's going to happen at the European Council, the summit, uh, which meets on the Tuesday after uh, the 23rd of June referendum. And people are saying, what's the plan B? Now, we have said throughout there is no plan B, and honestly, there is no plan B. Uh, There would have to be a whole alphabet of plans uh, to deal with all the possible hypothetical situations which could arise. All 27 other member states in February, in the European Council, very clearly wanted, and I've no doubt that they haven't changed their mind, Want it and want the UK to remain a member state for different reasons, uh, depending on the country. And the European institutions themselves also, very, very clearly and on the record, want the United Kingdom to remain a member state. That uh, uh, remains the case. Now, that means that we all hope that the vote is positive, but it doesn't tell you anything very much about what might happen afterwards. I read a lot of speculation about the various mechanisms uh, that might be uh, used uh, after the 23rd of June, depending on the result of the referendum. We know a few things. There are a few facts. We know what being a member state entails. I think we know what the European Union will look like, although it will have a dynamic of its own, if the UK votes to stay and this settlement of the 19th of February is fully and properly implemented. It will not be the same sort of European Union as the one uh, we have known before. This is another confirmation of the fact, and it is already a fact, that different member states are doing different things in different ways on some of the main uh, features of the European Union's activities. We know what EU relations with foreign countries generally look like. Uh, we know how we deal today with the non-EU countries in Europe, and there are various types of them. There's Norway, uh, Iceland, and Liechtenstein in the European Economic Area. There's Switzerland with a network of uh, bilateral agreements, some of which are in difficulty. We have relations with the microstates of Europe, San Marino, Andorra, the Vatican City, Holy See, uh, and so on. We know what borders between the European Union and non-European countries usually look like. Uh, We have heard expressions of concern, I'm just facts here, uh, from Northern Ireland, from Gibraltar, uh, about uh, what it might mean uh, to be very, very close to a border between a non-EU country uh, and an EU country. We know what the treaty says about withdrawing from the European Union. There is a prescribed procedure uh, for withdrawal. Uh, we know what that looks like. Uh, uh, but, of course, and this is not a scoop, uh, we hope, and I will conclude on that uh, uh, note, we hope that the Union will remain a union and united, facing the challenges before it, uh, and those challenges are very Considerable both within uh, and outside, at uh, indeed at its uh, borders. Uh, So uh, the current situation is clear. Uh, We will all have to deal with uh, whatever the result uh, of uh, the referendum is. Uh, But you should know, and I'm sure uh, that this is uh, uh, very well known, that uh, the rest of Europe is watching with bated breath. I think the rest of the world, to be honest, is watching with bated breath uh, as people begin to turn their minds to the implications of what uh, you uh, might vote uh, on the 23rd of June. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Jonathan. That was very um, informative, and you've covered a wide area of uh, items, and I'm sure there's going to be lots of questions. I'm going to ask the first question, however, uh, and that is, um, quote, there is no plan B, but you're head of the task force. Um, How do you occupy your time (laughs) if there was was no plan B? Just briefly. Well, here I am. I mean, I do a lot of... um,
1: Explaining to uh, groups like this, to parliamentary committees, uh, and uh, we uh, we think about, but without conceptualising any plan Bs, we think about uh, what uh, the future may hold. Uh, we advise the president of the commission, the members of the commission, uh, on uh, British. Uh, referendum related aspects of uh, their work. Uh, we are not, uh, to anticipate another question, we are not storing things up uh, uh, behind uh, closed doors only to open the floodgates on the 24th. We have done controversial things. We have taken legal action uh, against the UK. Uh, so I'm not a censor. I know some people must imagine that. I'm not stopping people. I, I've read about kettles and toasters and so on. Uh, we, are not, we are not stopping people uh, doing things. It's business as usual. This is a member state. We hope it remains a member state. But, frankly, as we do before elections in all of our countries, uh, we are careful not to be seen uh, to be interfering in the democratic process Uh, So uh, we have been prudent in what we are saying. I hope I have been today.
0: Okay, thank you. And there's a flow of information, presumably, between Whitehall and the strategy unit, your task force.
1: Yes, but, I mean, they're in Perth now, of course, as well. uh, And uh, we are very careful to deal with Whitehall in the same way as we would deal with its counterparts in other member states on on ongoing policy issues but in so far as the government has been involved, or parts of it uh, in fact all of it in different ways uh, in the campaign we make a very clear distinction between campaigning activities uh, and uh, normal business as usual and information about business as usual. Okay,
0: thanks. Now there's a number of Questions and I'll uh, come to those. Uh, there are colleagues with uh, microphones, so I'm going to invite you to simply say who you are and then to ask your question, and we'll try to get as many as possible. Can we take a colleague here? here? Uh, Richard Bronk in, in European Institute. Two quick questions. Uh, Wolfgang Schauble was asked what his reaction would be um, if Britain voted to leave, and he said he would cry. Would you cry? Um, and the second more, more serious question is, Article 50, um, as I understand it, says the terms would be decided by the remaining member states and offered to the leaving member state. Is that how you see it, or would it be a negotiated process? Thank you. Do you want to take another question as well? Or? Uh, l- let me answer that.
1: Okay. So there were two there. Yep. Um, would I cry personally? Yes, of course. Uh, I am uh, British, uh, I've devoted my working life to this. I would be very sad. Uh, I'm also a Democrat, so of course I would accept it. Would the Commission institutionally cry if such a thing is possible? Yes. I'm sure it would be, the decision would be regretted all over Europe. Nobody wants, and I think nobody seriously wants, to see uh, the European Union lose a very important member state. Uh, so whether people cry or not, uh, there would be, I think, uh, an enormous amount of dismay and regret. Um, we've never used Article 50, I hope we never do. Uh, so uh, it says what it says that uh, the terms of the negotiation on behalf of the European Union with the leaving member state, it's perfectly natural, would be set by the European Union without that member state. I mean, there would be two parties. now will other people talk uh, outside that formal setting? No doubt Uh, uh, I I can well imagine that that sort of thing that's that's the daily reality of the European Union already. It's a multiple uh, multi-dimensional negotiation game with with the formal setting in Brussels and Strasbourg and then everybody talking elsewhere uh, uh, building coalitions and so on Um, But there's no doubt that Article 50 uh, would uh, require the 27 uh, to uh, form a common view uh, uh, and give a mandate to its negotiator. Uh, Part of the Article 50 process would be the uh, designation of a negotiator, uh, a person, a body, uh, who would be responsible. I don't know who it's going to be. Uh, The European Commission is obviously uh, a uh, a likely candidate. Uh, That's the way trade agreements are done with the rest of the world. We'd have to see. Uh, But uh, once again, uh, uncharted waters, uh, and who knows what the mood would be like.
0: Thank you.
1: Sarah Heyman from the European Institute. You started off with the important legal distinction between this being an international agreement and not an EU institutional agreement. Could you elaborate on the implications of that and whether also that would have any uh, relation to legal challenges you could foresee, for an example, related to the social benefit uh, provisions uh, or if this is um, uh, not at all uh, the case? No. Those are two different issues. I mean, the the legislation which we would put in place, the Commission would propose, the Parliament and the Council would enact, uh, and then the United Kingdom would use, assuming that all of those things happen, uh, would eventually create a situation in which uh, two workers treated differently might uh, bring a legal action, of course, uh, uh, nobody can rule that out. It, this is legally binding. The legislation would be legally binding, but lots of things are legally binding. Doesn't stop in a democracy under the rule of law, doesn't stop people challenging them, and courts are independent. That is uh, different from the question about the legal status of what the uh, leaders agreed. Uh, This is not another European treaty. It is not an amendment of the European treaty. It is uh, alongside the treaty. It's an interpretation by uh, the leaders of the member states of how they understand it and are going to apply it. And it is fully compatible with it. Uh, And it is, therefore... Uh, a a matter of which the Court of Justice will take cognizance uh, when uh, interpreting the treaty. There's a court judgment called Rotman for the lawyers which establishes that principle. So it stands alongside uh, uh, the treaty and this is modelled very
0: much uh, on uh, what was done at Edinburgh for Denmark. Okay, good, thank you. Other questions, uh, please. Could we take the... Gentleman in the centre, and then we'll take the gentleman behind you. Hi, I'm... Uh, Ro- it's not working, can oh. you flick it on? Hello. <coughs> Hi, Ronotier uh, from Policy Network. Just wanted to ask you to elaborate a little bit on what you said on uh, Ever Closer Union. So if mm-hmm. I understand correctly, uh, you said the provision in the agreement. Uh, is that ever union doesn't bind the UK, but you also mentioned other member states. And uh, so, should we understand that other member states could use this provision, you know, on a particular occasion? And what uh, could this occasion be? Thank you. Okay, thanks. The gentleman Thank you. behind you. Thank you. Um, Alex Greer. Um, As it currently stands, the UK is set to hold the presidency of the Council uh, in 2017, and it's one of the duties that's incumbent on the the president is to be an honest and neutral broker. In the event that the UK voted to leave, could you foresee the UK still taking up this responsibility, um, whether or not it's within the two-year period of negotiation? Um, And if it does, um, is there any prospect that its legislative agenda would not be taken by the rest of the, um, the European Council Good, thank you Any other questions in this round? Uh, could we take the gentleman over here Hi, I'm David Hackett from Chartered Institute of Management Accountants A um, couple of questions really, one about the past um, with all your time in the European Commission, do you think there's any regrets or anything you could have done within the Commission to stop us getting to the point where there's a major member state leaving, <laughs> uh, and then secondly, looking to the future, do you have any thoughts about how you might, or about whether other member states are likely to take the same path, and how you might address that? Okay, let's take that. It's your Edith Piaf moment. <laughs>
1: I better not sing. I'll um, never close the union. Uh, There are two separate issues, really. The first one is the particular circumstances of the UK as, I suppose, the champion of opt-outs and uh, and special arrangements. Several member states have uh, special arrangements with the uh, EU not participating in everything, but the UK probably has most. Uh, Not in Schengen, not in the euro... Uh, not waiting to join either, not in the banking union, budget rebate, opt-out from justice and home affairs. The UK already does all of those things, and all of that has coexisted perfectly happily with the notion of ever closer union among the peoples of Europe being in the treaty. Nobody ever suggested for one second that these words in the treaty somehow formed an obstacle. I always like to say it's a rhetorical point uh, uh, I would like to say the best example of Ever Closer Union I have seen recently uh, was the English football fan singing La Marseillaise at Wembley after the attacks in Paris. That's Ever Closer Union among the peoples of Europe. It's a feeling of uh, uh, common challenges, destiny. Uh, you can be pompous about these things. Uh, uh, across Europe, uh, when our values uh, and our lives... Uh, are are threatened. Uh, It is not a charter for uh, ever greater integration. So the text says that. It says the United Kingdom has uh, a specific situation under the treaties. Fine. It also says uh, that the references, I'm quoting now, the references in the treaties and their preambles to the process of creating an ever closer union among the peoples of Europe do not offer a legal basis for extending the scope of any provision of the treaties or of EU legislation. They should not be used either to support an extensive interpretation of the competences of the union or the powers uh, of its institutions as are set out in the treaties. That's for everybody. Uh, uh, that is a statement of what the words mean and don't mean, but they have particular resonance in the UK because of the current context of the referendum, of course, and the misunderstanding, as I characterized it, but also because these words have existed happily in the treaty uh, uh, for many years uh, without in any way preventing the United Kingdom from uh, doing all the things it has done uh, or the other member states with various uh, opt-outs either for that matter. Um, On the question of the council presidency, that's a matter for the council. Uh, uh, I'm going to duck that one. Uh, the commission has no say in uh, how the uh, rotating presidency system works. Uh, uh, the council uh, will have to consider that issue if it becomes uh, relevant. Um, On... Uh, yes, Aided PF. Um, well, of course... Uh, uh, The European Union is not perfect and the European Union's institutions are not perfect. Uh, And this referendum takes place at a time when uh, the European Union uh, is uh, confronting major crises. And I don't think uh, uh, I am being disloyal to to the Commission in any way by saying that a lot of people think that uh, we... Uh, but when I say we, it's we collectively, uh, have not uh, met those challenges as effectively as we might. Uh, We uh, created the euro, uh, but uh, the uh, financial crisis revealed faults in its design, which we have been trying very hard to mend since the crisis emerged. We have Created the Schengen area uh, with uh, the uh, marvelous freedom of movement within it, crossing borders, uh, uh, but the uh, refugee and migration crises have revealed that we have not done enough to uh, organize collectively the management of the external borders of the Union or of the Schengen area within it. That is true now. I say we very broadly because the tendency to say that Brussels has failed uh, is, uh, frankly, uh, facile. Uh, The European Union is not Brussels. The European Union is here, there, and everywhere. It is the governments uh, of its member states, the institutions uh, of the Union, uh, and no doubt all of us should do better uh, and take responsibility for... Uh, uh, some of the failings. A 28 sovereign state-based organization is not an easy uh, ship to navigate, obviously. Uh, uh, And uh, no doubt uh, this could be done better. No doubt dissatisfaction uh, is reflected in the turnout in the European elections, in the rise of anti-European or skeptical uh, all populist uh, parties across the Union, not only in the UK. The UK is far from unique. Uh, I always say that of the four categories of issues which uh, the Prime Minister raised in his letter and which were dealt with, nearly all other member states had sympathy with one, two, or three of them. Uh, perhaps nobody had that precise cocktail of four, uh, but... Uh, uh, it is simply not the case that this is a very Eurosceptical country and all the others are perfectly happy with the way things are going that is obviously nonsense Uh, so uh, to answer your question uh, uh, how can we stop this happening again it is simply to do better uh, all the things which I think we know uh, 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 that we need to do uh, and improve uh, the democratic accountability of the institutions uh, and improve public acceptance of uh, the European Union as part of the way uh, Europeans govern themselves in the 21st century.
0: Thank you very much. Some more questions. Could we take the lady at the front here, please? This will have to be the last round, I think, because of the time.
2: Um, my name is Jurdy Kocsis. I'm, I'm a journalist from Hungary. Um, my question is that um, you you mentioned that Article uh, 50 says that um, the other 20, in, in case of practice, the other 27 member states have must come to common positions, must create common positions regarding the terms of the of the exit of the United Kingdom. And uh, uh, as we know, uh, there is, um, the treaty says that there are, there are two years to, to complete the negotiations. So one, my first question is, what happens if the 27 cannot create common positions uh, during these tw- uh, two years, which is, well, not far from likely, I think, or not far from unlikely? Uh, so what happens if, if the two years passes and um, there is no... Uh, No end, and the other question is that if uh, the negotiations last for two years or even more, perhaps during this time, um, well, I suppose the normal, uh, the ordinary legislative proposals are coming, going to come from the Commission. Um, What uh, will the United Kingdom take part in these uh, um, legal acts that the the European Parliament uh, members? or uh, the the government, the British government in the council? What's what's going to happen during these two years?
0: Thank you. The questions are getting more and more simple, aren't they? Yes. Um, Could we take the gentleman here, please? Adam Steinhaus. Officials uh, like yourself who arrived from the UK in the 1970s are not being replaced as you leave by a new generation of Britons. So are you seeing any effects within the Commission, is there less of a British voice, and how is that looking for the future, whatever the result of the referendum? Thanks. Any last questions, then, before we close? Perfect.
1: Well, I don't want to go into the uh, – or to speculate about what might happen in the Article 50 process. Uh, There are various stages at which decisions are taken by qualified majority and various stages at which decisions require unanimity. Uh, And uh, we know uh, that there is a deadline of two years from the date of notification uh, and that if no agreement is reached or if no agreement is reached to uh, extend the negotiations, which does require unanimity, then the member state, which two years previously had notified its intention to withdraw, withdraws, ceases to be a member state. The rest depends on uh, how people are reacting, voting, uh, coalescing during that period, which has never been tried before. We have no idea what the general context will be, international, the financial markets. uh, I simply... Uh, uh, cannot speculate, even if I wanted to, and I don't. Uh, so, sorry, uh, I hope, I was about to say we'll have to wait and see. I hope we never see. Uh, but uh, this will be completely unprecedented uh,
0: and, uh, no doubt, far from easy. Presumably in the strategy unit or the task force, then you're advising colleagues as to what might happen in that situation, as to how you would... Uh, calculate a qualified majority and the basis on which you would communicate the legislation?
1: Uh, That sort of thing, yes. Um, Now, uh, thank you for a, a slightly easier question. It is true that my generation and the one immediately after me is still reasonably well staffed by Brits, the people who came in the late 70s in my case, 80s, perhaps early 90s. As you get down to the younger uh, uh, colleagues, they are fewer and, f- and further between. And there are various reasons advanced for this. One is uh, the, that generation's uh, lack of foreign languages. Uh, one is buoyant labor markets for the sorts of people we... Uh, employ in this country for the last 10, 15 years, lawyers, economists, people, political scientists, people who emerge from this sort of uh, august seat of learning uh, have found satisfactory employment elsewhere. Plus, I can't deny it, uh, the European Union is not uh, seen as uh, glamorous, uh, certainly not as glamorous as it was when I went there, when my friends thought it was rather cool. I'm not sure that my children's generation would think like that. Uh, There has been a sustained attack on the European Union, uh, uh, a sustained period of dissatisfaction with it uh, in the media, in public opinion. uh, So it may have come to be seen. I don't know, there isn't much evidence. Uh, uh, other than anecdotal it may have come to be seen as not as interesting uh, wrongly by the way because it's fascinating uh, a place to work as it used to be. Now I hope very much that this will be rectified and corrected if on the 23rd of June we vote to stay in the EU Uh, then uh, I hope that both in uh, uh, Westminster and Whitehall and in Brussels People look again at the numbers. And by the way, we are not the only country with that problem. There is a more general problem of, inverted commas, rich, old, northwestern Europe, uh, uh, for some of the same reasons, uh, except the foreign language one, because they all speak English, uh, uh, whereas we seem to have forgotten to learn anything else. Uh, uh, And uh, I hope that steps are taken... I don't quite know yet what they would be, to encourage uh, more uh, young British uh, graduates taking an interest in the European Union as a career. I recommend it very highly to all the young people here. Great fun uh, and uh, noble. Uh, You said, by the way, that I teach at the College of... I, I both studied at and now I teach at the College of Europe in Bruges. This is not a plug. Uh, It has often been seen as a sort of nursery for EU officials, uh, and there are very few British students there uh, at the moment. I teach there, so I see this. So uh, it is a fairly profound problem, uh, which if we don't deal with soon, will uh, mean that the leaders of the institution tomorrow will not have Brits to choose from.
0: I'm not of the generation that can decide who is cool or uncool, (laughs) but I can, I think, as the chair uh, on your behalf, uh, thank Jonathan very much indeed for informing us about so many of these uh, complex issues.